Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Vincent Philip Munoz is professor of law and of political science at Notre Dame. He is the founding director of the university's Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government. His books include God and the Founders, uh, Washington Jefferson, Religious Liberty, and the American Supreme Court. That's the other book. Uh, he is one of the foremost scholars of the pressing subject of religion and law in the United States uh, today. And his new book continues that analysis. It is called Religious Liberty and the American Founding, Natural Rights and the Original Meanings of the First Amendment Religious Clauses. That is our topic today. Welcome, Professor Munoz. Thank you very much. I'm so pleased to be with you. You, you begin by referring to a situation in America today, the, quote, intellectual amnesia, as you put it, common at the current time about religious liberty as an inherent or natural right, not just as a blessing or, or a policy or, 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 a, or a political position. Uh, what, what is that? What is that amnesia going on here? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. So the, what I'm trying to do in the book is to recover the founder's understanding of natural rights and in particular, of religious liberty as an inalienable natural right. That's, that's their language. And if you look at our First Amendment jurisprudence or even the you know, scholarship on the religion clauses, no one really talks about natural rights. You know, they talk about neutrality or lots of scholars use a Rawlsian approach. Um, but the founders talked about religious liberty as a natural right. So I'm tr just trying to think through what that actually means and um, understand the principles of justice and the political and historical reasoning they used and uh, trying to set that forth uh, to the reader so we can understand it today. I, th I think it's a book one, one, one can recommend widely because it, it does really lay out it. it it's expository in, in many ways. First, before the debate, let's understand uh, what is going on here and understand some of the, some of the criticisms. And I, one would, uh, that I was thinking of is that uh, a core part of the proper remembrance, uh, so to speak, is to reconstruct, quote, the mind of the lawgiver. That's your phrase. What is your response to the progressive who says, uh, why should we be bound by what men thought and valued 230 years ago? Yeah, well, well, maybe we shouldn't be. Um, but to, to think you know, clearly about what, to what degree we should or should not be bound by uh, the founders and what they said 230 years ago, we have to know what they thought. You know, we have to understand their positions and the reasons for those positions. Uh, progressives, I think, are too quick to presume that um, what is new is necessarily better. You know, they think about um, law and morality 
uh, like they think about, like we all think about technology, you know, that the newest TV is going to be better than the TV from the 1980s or you know, 2010s. Um, that might be right when it comes to, you know, tech, you know, medical technology or televisions. It's not so clear that our moral knowledge is progressing or our legal knowledge is progressing. Um, so uh, maybe we have advanced in our understanding of justice, but maybe we haven't. And we can't know if we should uh, accept or reject the founders until we actually understand the founders. You, you go first to the text itself, those simple words laid out in, in, the, uh, in the First Amendment. And you, you sort of ask about the generality of the link, or even the Im- imprecision is a little indefinite there. Why did Congress draft a text in, in that form? Yeah, yeah, good. Okay, so this is a point I think many uh, scholars have missed. Um, we forget that the, the, the men who wrote the First Amendment and the Bill of Rights in general, the Federalists, didn't actually think the amendments were necessary. Uh, just a real quick history lesson. This will be familiar to many of your readers, but you know the anti-federalists, those who were against ratification of the Constitution, uh, said they wanted a Bill of Rights. And federalists like Madison in the Federalist Papers or James Wilson in Pennsylvania said, no, a Bill of Rights is not necessary because of the nature of the Constitution. The anti-federalists were strong enough to demand amendments, but not strong enough to uh, stop ratification of the Constitution. What the anti-federalists really wanted was a second constitutional convention. They wanted a second constitutional convention to rewrite the Constitution. Madison took charge of the amendment process and told his colleagues in the first Congress, and the first Congress was dominated by federalists, hey, if we write amendments, we will kill opposition to the Constitution. And so we have this odd historical situation where the people who wrote the Bill of Rights, the people who write the First Amendment, they don't actually think those amendments, and they don't actually think the First Amendment is necessary. Hmm. My argument here is we get, um, we don't have a careful debate in the first Congress about the true nature of religious liberty. We have a discussion among Federalists who say, look, we got to pass these amendments, let's just get it done. And therefore, we we're left with undetermined text, at least that's my argument. If you read the actual drafting of the First Amendment, um, it's, it's not nearly as precise as we'd like it to be. When people speak, and, and, and I, 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 I guess you're implying that so much of the, the conflict, the controversy that has followed for so long does have to do with what do these specific words mean? And there was one word that, that, that came up uh, afterward in, in the uh, in legal decisions later on, when people speak of religion as something toward which the government should be, quote, neutral, they mean a lot. Uh, it's a loaded term. You, you talk about how loaded that term is. What, what does neutrality actually mean in, in their eyes, in, in, in natural rights people's eyes, in, or, or even in practice as the government operates. Yeah. So neutrality is a good example of what I was just talking about. So let me finish my last thought, which is that because the text is unclear or underdetermined, the text of the First Amendment, you have to go beyond the text to actually interpret the text. You have to go somewhere 
to figure out the meaning of what an establishment of religion is or what the free exercise is. One of the places that scholars and justices has gone is to this concept of neutrality. The founders don't talk about neutrality. It's not the term they use. It's a modern term. Well, one of the reasons that neutrality has been so powerful is, well, who's against neutrality? Right. You know, I mean, if you're against neutrality, you're you're biased or you're a partisan. Um, it doesn't have a clear meaning. You know, what is neutral is in the eye of the beholder. It's like saying you should be fair. Uh, and therefore, justices have imported all sorts of concepts into neutrality. I don't I don't find it a particularly helpful concept because it's so uh, broad. Moreover, it's not a concept the founders themselves used. Hmm. You turn to some of the other texts around the time, such as the Virginia Declaration of Rights, uh, going way back. And there, George Mason emphasized uh, a phrase you cite, quote, the fullest toleration in the exercise of religion. Madison then changed that to the full and free exercise. What didn't, well, what did Madison dislike about the word toleration? Yeah, okay, well, think, we have to remember what to tolerate means, or the concept of toleration. Toleration is, um, uh, implies disapproval, right? Uh, you know, I have, I have children, so I tolerate their behavior, meaning I don't like their behavior, but it's not worth my trouble, or, you know, I'm willing to uh, indulge in it. Um, Madison didn't like the idea of tolerating um, religious exercises because he thought the government has no authority to direct religious exercises. It's not the government doesn't have the power to tolerate because government doesn't have authority to, to judge religious exercises in their first point. Right. Mm -hmm. So toleration was the wrong conception of government. I'm sorry. Toleration implies the wrong conception of government's authority. Government doesn't tolerate religious exercises. Government must respect the natural right to exercise huh. one's religion. So toleration uh, presumes an authority that government doesn't have. Same thing George Washington said to his letter to the to the Hebrew congregation in Newport, Rhode Island. I I, I don't I don't know if you you you, you know that I certainly don't know this, but did toleration appear in some of the state constitutions? around this time? No, no. They all moved away from the language of toleration. And, and I'm not sure about this, but perhaps because of the Virginia Bill of Rights. So uh, let me back up just to, um, in 1776, when it was clear that uh, we were going to declare independence, um, uh, the, the leadership of the country said to the states, you know, it's time you should rewrite constitutions or write constitutions. We're going to declare independence. And many of the states, not all, but many of the states also wrote um, declarations of rights. Uh, these declarations of rights, uh, they're not exactly like the Federal Bill of Rights. They're not legal documents per se. They're really statements of principles. And so the, the exchange between George Mason and James Madison, this occurred in uh, the drafting of Article 16 of the Virginia Declarations of Rights. Mason, as you suggested, used the language of toleration. The very young James Madison revised that language and really set the set the tone for the rest of the Declarations of Rights. I mean, the Virginia Bill of Rights was hugely influential. And I think we don't get the language of toleration because the founders embraced the natural rights understanding. And you see that in all the other Declarations of Rights, or at least most of them. You refer to the, quote, social compact theory that, that motivated 
that the founders brought to the drafting of the Constitution. Uh, for, for, for those of us not, not, not political scientists, what is social compact theory? Okay, good. I mean, that's a big question. Um, it starts with the idea that all human beings are created equal. And of course, well, what does that mean? Uh, it, it means that political authority is not instituted by, by divine revelation. God doesn't say who, who should rule or who, sh- who should be subservient. Uh, that's what all men created equal means. And therefore, political authority arises via consent. Um, this was the f- common understanding of the founders, right? That no one was born to rule by nature. There are no kings by nature or no queens by nature. That's what all men political or equal means. And therefore, legitimate government is instituted via consent. It doesn't mean that consent is, consent is a necessary but not sufficient condition to legitimate rule. Right. So just because we consent to it doesn't make the rule legitimate. The rule has to be for the common good and it has to be respectful of natural rights. Moreover, when we consent to establish governing authorities, we don't transfer all authority to government. We reserve some things. We reserve our inalienable natural rights. So the term inalienable has a precise meaning. It's um, we don't alienate our authority over our religious exercises because we can't. We don't give government all authority um, because some authority we reserve for ourselves because we owe that authority to someone else, such as God. Right. So we our right of religious liberty is inalienable. Right. But how did the founders draw the line on religious worship? I mean, what would make to them a, a, a certain religious practice illegal? Well, there's a difference between illegal and inalienable. So it's in the nature of the thing. And let me use an example here that maybe will help clarify things to the listeners. The right to revolution is an inalienable natural right. The government can't secure your right to revolution. It's nonsensical. If you understand what the right to revolution is, you know, well, that's not something you you don't get a revolutionary license from the government. You know, you can do a little revolution on, you know, Monday through Friday after 5 p.m. Right to revolution by nature is inalienable. It's something that you or the people retain through the nature of the right. Uh, Madison, Jefferson, and uh, Protestant leaders all concluded that the right to religious worship was inalienable. We don't give government authority over our right to worship. Madison used natural theology. Jefferson used enlightenment philosophy. And I, I use a figure named uh, Isaac Bacchus, who was a, a very influential Baptist preacher. He was probably the, maybe the most typical, he made the most typical arguments were from Protestant theology, from uh, their understanding of scripture, that the, the nature of religious worship was inalienable. So the idea of, so you asked about social compact theory. Social compact theory is just the founder's understanding of what makes government just, and also what, where the proper limits of government must be. Right. It's it's we talk about limited government today. This is the foundation of the of our understanding of limited government. Government can't do all things because we don't give it power to do all things. We don't give it power to do all things because some some things we must reserve uh, out of justice, but to ourselves and to God. Very good. And. 
and there the conscience you speak of conscience conscience is well how would you characterize conscience relative to well it's relative to government yeah relative to 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 you know government policies regulations and 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 so on what is conscience you know that's a very that's a very very good question let me let me give you a concrete example which will help illustrate uh, the meaning of conscience um uh, if you want to practice law, you have to have a law license. If you want to get married, you have to get a married license, a marriage license. You get a marriage license from City Hall, right? You you pass a test. And if you want to practice medicine, you get a medical license. These are licensing is the way government um, exercises authority over these professions, presumably. So you're a competent lawyer or a competent doctor or a competent you know, beautician. And so you have a cosmetology license. If you ask can government issue preaching licenses, right? Does government have authority to issue preaching licenses? You want to preach the word of God? Go get a preaching license from City Hall. And I think we immediately say, no, government can't issue preaching licenses. Well, why not? Why can government license almost every profession but not preaching? And this gets to the nature of our religious worship. We don't give government authority over religious exercises. And therefore, government lacks authority to issue things like preaching licenses, right? So the rights of conscience, right, are inalienable, meaning there are certain things government can't do. Preaching licenses is one concrete example. Other examples would be government can't legislate how you worship. It can't say, you know, you must go to services on a Saturday or a Sunday. You must go to confession once a week through this type of priest right? Government can't issue laws like that. It's not part of what we ask the government to do. A few weeks ago, First Things launched the 2022 year-end campaign, which aims to raise $800,000 from 1,200 readers and listeners like you. We're using this campaign to go public against the dominant 21st century media landscape. Let's just call it junk food journalism. Attention-grabbing titles, sensationalistic claims, Manichaean moral dichotomies, you know what we're talking about. Such articles might taste good for a moment, they might appeal to our, our lesser natures, but ultimately they leave us profoundly unsatisfied. Resist junk food journalism and put your hand to the plow by contributing to the First Things 2022 year-end campaign today. Visit www.firstthings.com backslash donate to make your gift. Thank you. You, you you said a moment ago when you turn to the preaching license, sort of generally people understand, no, no. I think that's how you put it. And, and this gets to, into another point in the book where you note that these ideas about, about conscience, about, about religious freedom, even natural rights, were not confined just to the intellectual elite in America, those who read uh, John Locke and, and wrote about him that an inherent right to worship as you please, as long as you're not, you know, really, you really, you know, interfering with others, uh, and pretty much was common throughout the new nation, even among, you know, people who weren't college goers. Trust? True? Yeah, yeah. It, it's in the political sermons. This is how most people are educated. And the, the political sermons of the founding era, and they've been collected, you can read them when you read them. You see both Lockean defenses of the idea of natural rights and the rights of conscience, but also more scriptural defenses. And I, 
you know, these are ubiquitous. I, I use the figure of Isaac Bacchus and I just because he's so influential and, and so clear-sighted on this, but it's not just limited to him. So you're exactly right that the, the common language of um, these concepts was, was really religiously rooted. It wasn't just religiously rooted, but it, for, I would say, you know, for Joe American at the time of the founding, these ideas were heard, um, they were heard from the preachers. And spread widely because so many people worshipped every week. Yes, you know, I mean, the the how religious uh, you know everyday Americans were at the time of the founding is um, maybe they were less religious than we think. Um, I, I I use the language, uh, you know, this is sort of tongue in cheek, but there was an overlapping consensus. The reason and revelation taught the same thing here. So um, gentlemen like Madison. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, reached the same conclusions as the preachers and the men and women in the pews. They all agreed that uh, the right to worship was an inalienable natural right. Did did they ever think that conscience could become distorted or unnatural or somehow... No, the unnatural behavior was actually a suppression of, of conscience. I mean, could conscience be denatured in, in, in some way. Yeah, I, you know, those. <laughs> let me try to use their examples, and um, I'm not sure what denatured exactly how they would u- think of that language, but the Quakers posed a difficult challenge, right? So Quakers are pacifists. You know, they're clearly, their beliefs are clearly religious and religiously motivated, right? They believe it's wrong to um, participate uh, in, in the war effort. George Washington dealt with this as a commander-in-chief. And the way that Washington talked about Quakers and the way that Madison talked about Quakers and their pacifism, I think, is very revealing. No one really wanted to make the Quakers fight. I mean, for one, they're just they wouldn't be good soldiers. I mean, there's a practical dimension to this. Hmm. Um, but Washington and Madison and other leading founders were very clear that the Quakers didn't have a right not to fight. They, they might be granted an exemption from the law by the by way of legislative grace, but it was not part of the natural right to religious freedom. Now, let me try to explain that. When you join the social compact, when you're a citizen, I mean, the very first thing, your very first duty is to fight for your country, right? The, the, the government social compact is a mutual defense pact, right? I fight for you, you fight for me. I don't harm you, you don't harm me. And we've, we defend each other against our common enemies. That's what being a citizen is. I mean, that's the first purpose of government is the protection of lives and property. Um, if you're not willing to join the club, um, you, well, you really can't be a full member, right? So the Quakers were in an odd spot that they wanted to be members of the society, but they weren't willing to incur the burdens of citizenship. And uh, the founders were very clear on this. Um, you know, Quakers will indulge you in your religious beliefs, but you don't have a right not to fight. Your only natural right is actually not to be a member of the political community. You don't have to be a member of the political community. But if you are going to be a member of the community, you have to take on the obligations of citizenship. No. We can discretionarily give, give discretionary exemptions, but it's not a matter of right. So I think that the so Quakers are the, the one test case to see how the founders thought about it and to see how natural rights theory um, interplays with um, 
conceptions of conscience that the founders would have thought are, are not compatible with the natural right of religious freedom. Right. Where did they stand on religious tests for political office? Yeah, this was, this was mixed. So Madison thought they were wrong, that no citizen's political rights should be directed by their religious beliefs. The early state constitutions did have religious tests. Uh, not all of them, but most of them. Uh, in Massachusetts, for example, you had to be a Protestant to be the governor or to be a state senator. Um, the way these religious tests were defended is interesting. Um, the defenders of the religious tests for office would say something like the following. Uh, look, we have limitations on office holding. You have to be a certain age. You have to be a resident of the you know, relevant jurisdiction. The, we have these limitations on office holding. We have these various tests to make sure the office holders are of fit characters, right? That they have sympathy with the people. Um, they have the wisdom. Well, we're going to use religious affiliation as a proxy for virtue. So we, we limit office holding to Protestants because we want God-fearing men to hold office. Now, it's legitimate to you to want to limit office holding to the virtuous. But Madison said, look, you can't use religion as, a, as the proxy, as the means. So there was some debate on this matter uh, among the founders. I think Madison and Jefferson ended up winning this debate. Um, and, and you see this in the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, Jefferson's bill. You know, and Jefferson and Madison there say, you know, our, our political rights should not be limited by religious affiliation. To what degree did they assume that some religious commitment, some form of, of worship and religious education really was uh, crucial to maintaining the traits uh, a citizenry must have to keep a Republican government? Yeah, I, I think there's actually more agreement than we realize that um, Republican government requires a moral people. And morality is uh, nurtured by religious sentiment. And so religion, I mean, Tocqueville would say religion is the first of America's political institutions. And in a way, that was Washington's position. And in a way, Madison's position as well. Um, founders like Washington thought because religion was so important, it, it was legitimate for government to nurture, to foster the religious character of the people. Uh, you see this in the Northwest Ordinance when land is set aside for churches federal legislation. Uh, Madison's position was only slightly different, and the difference was really more in the means. Madison said, uh, yes, religion is necessary for Republican government, uh, but re Republican government isn't necessary for religion. In mm -hmm. fact, um, you know, he's sort of libertarian in this sense. Religion will be fine, be fine if left to its own. And, um, you know, think of the way that, uh, you know, contemporary conservatives think about education. You know, you can be in favor of education, but not in favor of government control of education. In fact, many conservatives think that, you know, government control of education leads to the corruption of education. That was sort of Madison's position with religion. Yes, religion is necessary because moral character is necessary, but religion doesn't need the aid of government. As we wrap up, Professor Munoz, uh, in, in a quick summary of, of what is the original meaning of the Establishment Clause? Yeah, uh, I don't know if I can do the quick summary of that. It's, uh, <laughs> let, me, let me throw out a couple bullet points. 
uh, first is um, there is no clear, unambiguous, original meaning of what constitutes an establishment of religion. Uh, this gets back to what I was saying earlier. No one in the first Congress was in favor of a religious establishment or giving the national government power to create a religious establishment. They were all against it. And so they could all agree that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment. You could agree to that language without specifying what actually constituted an establishment of religion. Um, you know, and they felt no need to clarify that. Well, we do have a need to clarify that today. Um, I think if you think through the founders' natural rights theory and you look to their uh, historical examples, the clearest example here is the 1778 Constitution of South Carolina, which had an establishment. Uh, you'll see two things. Uh, religious establishments at the time of the found founding included what I call uh, state establishments. That's when the state acts like a church. That's when government officials um, choose religious ministers, uh, uh, set official tenets of religious faith that churches must subscribe to. Uh, so those are state establishments. And religious establishments at the time of the founding included what I call church establishments. This is when the state delegates its power to churches. When the, uh, for example, when the state gives church authorities the power to tax. So it's the delegation of state authority to churches and when the state acts like a church. Now, those are a little bit imprecise, and I try to give a little bit more precise accounts in the book itself. Um, one thing an establishment is not is the idea that government can't advance religion or erects a wall of separation or mandates neutrality to return to a topic we talked about before. These were not, um, this was not the intellectual conception of an establishment. It was a much more precise relationship between church and state. Uh, now that said, uh, I talk about the Establishment Clause needing to be constructed because there is no you know, clear, unambiguous, original meaning of the word establishment. That, the implication is that originalism, uh, one of the things that it requires is that we dig very deeply into the debates and laws and pamphlets and commentaries and documents of of that time, uh, which you do in in the book. I mean, uh, originalism isn't just uh, a theory of going back, but it's also it's also a method, right? A practice that really involves some pretty serious historical archival study. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, you have to you have to try to learn everything you can about the original meaning. Follow it where if you're an originalist, follow it uh, where the meaning is clear. But if it's not clear, you're going to have to go beyond the text. Um, and that's what I try to do here. And the beyond the text is to the founder's political philosophy, which is a natural rights philosophy. I think that's inevitable um, uh, for any originalists. And I think um, it, it, my, my project is originalist in a larger sense uh, of trying to capture the, the original philosophical approach of the founders and then explain what that approach would mean today. It could be to return to your progressive critique, you know, that the founder's approach doesn't work very well today. I'm open to that, but we can't have that conversation until we actually understand the founder's approach. And that's just what I'm trying to do. Well, you do that in the book. It's called Religious Liberty and the American Founding, Natural Rights and the Original Meanings of the First Amendment Religious Clauses. 
Professor Munoz, thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930. Thank you.